Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today, we're going to talk about beep you've never heard of, a.k.a. shit you've never heard of. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. What's going on, Emily Reese? Not much. What up with you? Uh, I'm excited for this episode because it is minutia. It is such minutia. It's sort of, yeah. It's great. It's. I think this will be really fun for novices and professionals alike because we're going to talk so. about yeah. things you've never heard of, both regarding grapes, wine, and classical music. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's start with some wine. Fill the chalices today, Emily Reese. That dripped on my pinky, so I just cheated and had a little taste. That's Whoa, quite... it's got a bunch of stuff in the bottom of it. And what what made us... So we weren't going to record today, right? I was going to be traveling in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and then s- stuff happened, and um, we decided that why not slip in an episode? Mm-hmm. And we th- we thought, well, why don't... You know, we, we I think we do a great job of coming up with some really in-depth stuff mm-hmm. three quarters of the time and <laughs> and this 25% was like let's do something fun yeah let's do something light because we could have shifted our whole schedule up we have episodes you know ideas to, you know lists rules of atonal music for example <laughs> <laughs> now don't get overwhelmed and don't give away the whole picture true here. true that but but yeah. so we decided yeah let's do some stuff that's just fun and light and uh, especially the times call for it so I brought a wine from a grape varietal that I can't say, out of the hundreds of thousands of wines I've tasted, I mm-hmm. can't say I've ever had this grape on its own. I'm sure I've had it shoved into a blend and didn't know it was there. Mm. But the grape is called Badiki. Badiki. B-A-D-I-K-I. And it is, as you can see here, we're looking at an amber version. This has um, definitely some skin contact. So Badiki hails from Turkey, they think, and was brought over to Greece during the time of the Ottoman Empire and their, you know, ruling over mainland Greece and many of its islands. And Badiki found kind of a a nice home in and around the area of Tirnavos, which is kind of the foothills and the plains of Mount Olympus. So kind of almost smack dab in the, the center and north part of Greece. And limestone soils um, prevail there. And, yeah, I don't know. Let's give this a taste before I talk more about it. Badiki. Badiki. Single varietal badiki to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Whoa. Yes. Weird. So this is about a little cooler than cellar temperature. Needs to be colder. Okay. I think for, for full enjoyment. It tastes like we had a on our rosé episode, we had a... the. Cantina Giardino Frizzante Rosato, and and you said pixie sticks or something mm-hmm. like that, or mm-hmm. um, yeah. pop rocks or something. And P- it, pixie sticks. This yeah. tastes kind of like Mandarin pixie sticks. Notice how racy the acidity is. Yeah. So that's from limestone soils. When we have what do you lime- mean racy though? I don't know what that means. Like really high levels of mm-hmm. acidity. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the sommelier guilds, when you have to say medium plus acidity, medium minus, low plus, this to me would be like high. 
high acidity. Okay. Okay. But then just because that's boring to me, I say racy. It's okay. like it's high and it's like yeah, kind yeah. of fast and electric. Yeah. So this has 25 days of skin maceration. And Badiki wow. is a grape that is tannic. It's a white grape and it's it's fairly mm-hmm. tannic. So mm-hmm. here I think you can really taste that. The fact they've done a month of skin contact. They've also done they've taken 50% of the skins or okay. the stems, excuse me, okay. and incorporated those into that maceration. So what we get with that is an extra level of tannin. We also get an element of the, there are antioxidants that live in those stems, just like okay. pips and skins of grapes. Okay. So there's a need for you You have to add less sulfur that way. Uh, we also hear, I think, that it because these are fermented at ambient temperatures, there's no temperature control here. I think that when you include stems, if you th- if you f- Think about like a take like an inch by inch and hyper focus in on that ferment. That's going to increase space for airflow. So your temperature of your ferment is going to be a little cooler than if it were like got hot and heavy, which could potentially happen in Greece on okay. the plains and foothills of Mount Olympus. So I don't know. What do you think about it? It's okay. It's weird. It's not like ripe and fruity. You know what I mean? It's like you just brush your teeth though. I did. It's been a half hour. I'll be curious what you think as you warm up to this. Okay. I think it's like a chuggable wine. I can see though it's very structurally bound. You know, it's not you're right. There's not a lot of like apricots or, you know, stone fruits or plums or things we could associate with like a skin fermented white wine. They did do this all in almost all in inox, so stainless steel to retain any sort of fresh fruit characteristics, but also they transferred it to some old oak before they bottled it. And what that likely does is it it helps the wine settle. So all this sediment that we're seeing, if they didn't do that, it would have A, been even more tannic. Okay. And B, it wouldn't have breathed any, so it would have been more tannic. But also yeah. we would probably see more sediment, very low sulfur added. I think it's really pure. I think it's super fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should I go shove that in the freezer for a while? Maybe. Pour ourselves a little more and then we can just... Yeah, I don't need more right now. Well, so I'm I'm sorry you don't love Badiki. I don't not love it. I'm it's kind just, of enamored how quirky it is. It's quirky. It's very rectangular. I me. love that. Yeah. Can you, can you expand upon that? Uh, I don't think I can, which is weird. Well, like I, it seems like a... Uh, in the Sommelier Guild world, they'd say, Try. <laughs> this is what I would say. Picture a rectangle in pencil on a piece of paper. That's what this wine tastes like. <laughs> it's like a, a box with things that you want in it that maybe there isn't in it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't I, know how to... I can see what you mean when you say a rectangle and perhaps a box that's got maybe a lot of structure. Yeah. Like it's very... Yeah. And there isn't a lot of stuffing. So this is an 11.5% alcohol wine. So in my world, that's pretty light. Yeah. And when you have structural and you have light and a lot, you know, tannic, it's got skin contact. Sometimes what suffers is fruit. Okay. Not all the time, but... um, And it could be... How long have these people been cultivating in single, like... They're vinifying this as a single varietal. How long have they been mm-hmm. doing that? Yeah. Probably not their whole lives. So yeah. maybe they pick too early. And that's why it's got really bright acidity, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have the phenolic ripeness, yeah. all the fruit esters. Maybe they need to harvest a little later Yeah. next time. It has a nice 
honey aftertaste. Hmm. Like at the yeah. end, I taste honey, which is really nice. Up top, you are. <laughs> this, um, <laughs> I wanted to mention, this is a producer called Papras. Oh, cool. So okay. they're out of, nice. uh, they're doing a lot of fairly natural work out of uh, central, central northern Greece. Okay. So happy to, happy to have it today. Nice. Me too. Yeah. What, what is on your list of weird things we've <laughs> never heard of? There's a few things I'm going to talk about today. And uh, uh, one is kind of an unexpected piece a little bit. I, not if you're familiar with the composer, of course. I'm talking about Aaron Copeland. And Aaron Copeland is kind of known as like the father of American music or kind of gets a lot of credit for creating an American sound in the early 1900s, early to mid-1900s. And uh, a lot of his music is very beautiful and very consonant, so sounds that are pleasing to hear. But he also did a lot of experimentation with atonal music, also music that's known as serial music, S-E. When you say atonal, I think a lot of people don't know Mm -hmm. what that means. Can you atonal music compared to tonal music? uh, Tonal music follows fairly strict rules in terms of how how notes act and where they go after you hear them and and things like that. So when we think of tonal music, you can think of um, you know really anything that Bach wrote all the way uh, well into the 1900s, uh, well, kind of. Um, but it's just music. That- and can, can we say that, can I interrupt, and can we say yeah. that it's music, like top 40 music is tonal, right, for the most part. Yeah. Like tonal music is like, has this yeah. harmonic se- this harmonic center that's yep. all around like one, it's like a key that's like the major chords yeah. kind of thing. So okay. C major okay. is, cool. you know, a tonal center or something. Yeah. And so atonal is the opposite. So atonal doesn't have those rules. It has different rules sometimes. Sometimes it literally has no rules at all. But Aaron Copeland liked to experiment with that, and he liked to try and find ways to make that kind of music sound pretty still. That's cool. And so one of the most famous examples for him of this, he wrote in 1930. Aaron Copeland was born in 1900, and he died in 1990. Uh, This piece he wrote in 1930, and it's just called Piano Variations, and he took four notes, and he wrote a set of 20 variations based off of those four notes, and it's about a 10 or 11-minute piano piece, and then about almost 30 years later, he also took that music and arranged it for orchestra, and so there's also an Aaron Copeland piece called Orchestral Variations, but we'll hear the piano version. But before we do that, though, I do want to give you an example of some music that you know from Aaron Copeland that you've probably heard, just so you can have an idea of that. So let's just, probably his most famous piece of music, um, one of them would be Fanfare for the Common Man. So let's hear that now. Whenever Emily and I are about to do a a podcast, I I try to research as much as I can so I can get more out of listening, as you all are. And I find that when you look up tonal and atonal music, there's a lot of 
it the the Wikipedia pages and all the pages that are like they sound like you're in a when you read them it's kind of like a master's or PhD for music like so you can tell someone is really into it who wrote a lot of that that subject matter and so it's it's kind of hard to read and and make sense of what they're talking about unless you have previous musical knowledge mm-hmm. so the easiest way to think of atonal music if you're like me, who's a music buff, but you didn't go to music school, is that atonal music lacks like a tonal center. Mm-hmm. It lacks that harmonic structure, that the center core where you can like find it easily. And that's, that's like how I think about it, that I didn't go to music mm-hmm. school. Yeah. You will hear a lot of dissonance. So you're going to hear what that means is you're going to hear a lot of notes that sound like they clash together mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it's almost like high acidity where it's just like, ooh, you know, it just yeah. really grabs your ear, like makes it sound crunchy, you know? Oh my God, atonal is this badiki. Yeah. Maybe for you. Maybe. Right? Well, I like atonal music. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I like the badiki too, but but any, anyway, so you heard a little bit of fanfare for a common, for, for the common man. Uh, let's hear just a little bit of um, one of his film scores. This is from The Red Pony. This is one of my favorite uh, of his film scores. Just to, to get an idea, to give you an idea of the kind of music that is so popular by Aaron Copeland. Okay, so it goes on and on. And are we on. gonna atonal? Yep. So now we'll listen to his uh, piano variations, and you hear those first four notes. Those first four notes are the notes that are the basis for the entire piece. So here you go. I like the most about this piece is that he does this cool thing where he's he'll he asks the performer to like hold a key down and then strike a different key that will make that string on the other key ring in a certain Mm. way just based off of the harmonics and the physics of sound and so you hear all these cool ringing things at times where it even might even create kind of a dissonance and you're like where did that tone even come from and like almost creating a note that doesn't exist kind of thing they they definitely exist but they're like phantom notes almost you yeah know? that's that's maybe how yeah. i wanted to yeah yeah And the other thing that I I really do enjoy about this piece is, um, and this was something that Copeland felt really strongly about when he wrote music like this, is he really did want to make it still as beautiful as he could. And it has, you know, so you hear these really melodic phrases almost singing in this way that 
you know, is just maybe not quite as quite as pretty as you expect, but it's there's still beauty to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I could it seems to me that atonal music, when I listen to it, it's a mood. You yeah. know, like I don't put it on to like cook myself some pasta. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm putting on atonal music when I'm yeah. I wanna think or I wanna write or I wanna but not when I want a vacuum or something, you know. Yeah, Copeland said that this kind of music, for him at, at the very least, was almost like your woodshedding or your workshopping music. You're you're thinking about composition in a different way. It forces you to do different things with music than what you were originally trained to do and what you usually hear done. Mm-hmm. And so for him, he kind of likened it to uh, a fugue in the Baroque era, and we've talked about fugues. Uh, on scores and pours before, fugues had very specific rules that if you don't follow, it's not a fugue. It can be fugue-like, but if you bend any of those rules, the you're not writing a fugue. Mm-hmm. So there are specific rules for that. And he he talked about how for him, you know, writing music in an atonal way or in using atonal techniques in did that for him. It made him focus and follow a structure because that music is so highly structured. What we just listened to, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of form to it. Yeah. A lot of stuff he's doing. Everything is very deliberate. So So did you choose this as, you know, shit people haven't heard of because it was (laughs) Aaron Copeland doing atonal music or just atonal music? Okay. Because he's not known for that, right? right? Okay. Right. Okay. You know, certainly if you're a hardcore Aaron Copeland fan, you're going to know all the styles in which he wrote because there were many. But it's it's just fun when you know that, you know, this is a guy who really is almost single-handedly credited with creating the American sound. I mean, we can also talk about George Gershwin and Leonard Bernstein too. But Aaron Copeland is is number numero uno when it comes to that, and and to hear that this too was a very big part of his compositional life mm-hmm. is uh, just interesting to me. You know, cool. Yeah, I mean, he he did it all. Badiki, <laughs> Badiki, and Aaron Copeland, Aaron atonal Copeland. Yeah. music. I wanted to talk about an island, not in the middle of the Mediterranean, the far eastern, southeastern part of the Mediterranean. We're less than 60 miles from the country of Syria. Oh. And we have the amazing island of Cyprus that has been making wine since at least 2,300 BCE. Wow. And we know this because in the 90s, there was a shipwreck that was found with over 2,000 amphora. Oh, yeah, And yeah. it was on this trade route. Didn't Jacques Cousteau was, find that one, you said? This is a different one. Okay. <laughs> but but there, was a, there have been a ton of discoveries in the last two decades okay. of, in the Mediterranean, three decades even, of just these ships littered with amphora. Wow. And this was found in a place where it was right between the Greek and the Egyptian trade routes. Mm -hmm. So they know that Cyprus was a part of that. It's crazy how many times Cyprus has changed hands, right? So it's belonged to the Roman kingdom. It's belonged to the Arabs, the English, actually, um, after the third crusade, during the third crusade, it was sold off to the Templars. (laughs) Jerusalem had Cyprus for a while, the Venetian kingdom. Wow. So it's changed hands many times, 
And all the while, we know that wine has been, the vine has been part of almost every part of this process with the exception of the Ottoman Empire, right? Because Arabs, there were times where they stifled a lot of vine production. Sometimes they let it go because they were like, hey, you know, you pay some taxes, we'll let that be. But that depends on the region in which we're talking about. There's a really cool wine that has, we think, has been around since the time of like Hesiod and, you know, ancient Greece, which is called nowadays, it's called Comandaria, and it came from a a specific vineyard that was part of the Grand Commandery, um, but I won't go into that part of history. We'll just talk about Cyprus and the fact that it's a lot, they've been growing vines and making wine for freaking 4,000 years. (laughs) So almost as long as the Georgians and certainly as long as the Greeks and the Romans, and this specific wine called Comandaria, they think is one of the oldest flavors we have for wine. Okay. Meaning, you know, Georgia, they, we have that taste of quevery and that taste of a lot of maceration. And then you have Retsina with pine resin and as a preservative and a flavor agent. And so Comandaria, they're taking grapes. They're partially drying them, so getting them close to raisins. Um, oh. Your... You know, this name, we see the name Comandaria coming up between, you know, the 11 and the 1400s. But since the time, like I said, of Hesiod, 800 BCE-ish, we know that this a wine of the very similar ilk was being crafted. So what happens is this wine is with the raising or partially raising of these grapes, they take a really long time to ferment because the sugars are so high. Okay. So after fermentation... You still have a quite a sweet wine because the the sugars have won the battle. Yeast, when they are in a really high sugar environment, they can't live, so they'll stop fermenting at eight percent alcohol, ten percent alcohol, you know, give okay. or take, depending on the type. And so here, post fermentation, when they those yeasts have stopped doing their work, they'll fortify it with like a neutral grape spirit or grape distillate to around twenty percent. You know, and you're left with a wine that is 390 to 450 grams of residual sugar. So this is sweeter than jam in most cases. Wow. It's got these notes of like sun-kissed raisins. It's usually like this kind of brownish, not even copper. It's like a brown rusty, almost gray in color if you were able to like smash together together all of those hues. And it's usually made from either the Mavro grape or the Xinitsteri grape. Those are red and white grapes that are okay. indigenous to Cyprus originally. And yeah, just, I don't know, a place that I haven't been. I've always wanted to go. Um, most wines right now in Cy- on the island of Cyprus are made in a pretty industrial touristy fashion, mm-hmm, but there mm-hmm. are still people that are making some really awesome, really cool small production stuff. And the Comandaria is like, if you can get your hands on a bottle, it's not worth drinking every day because <laughs> it's really flipping sweet and it's yeah. intense, but it is it is a taste of history because uh, with the exception of boatloads of sulfur, it's been made that way for quite a long time. All right. So that's Cyprus. Cyprus. I just throw that out there that Cyprus is a cool nation making wine, continuously still making wine, and closer to the Middle East than it is really the rest of Europe. But 
um, was one of, there was at one point they were the most important place in the Middle East making wine. And there was a time where the Middle East was the center of wine trading and production, Mesopotamia and the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Mm -hmm. Syrians. So Mm -hmm. Cyprus, that's saying something. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, speaking of ancient times, I guess. I mean, not as ancient as 3200 BCE, but... uh, (laughs) 2300 BCE. (laughs) Or whatever it was, yeah. Um, It's not that ancient, is my point. But this is a term that first pops up into the world in 1767, but was around a lot longer than that before that. Uh, It's a term called the Picardy Third. And this is something that is so simple to explain and so easy to listen to that it'll just take us half a second. Basically, the Picardy Third is when you take a piece of music or a big section of music that's in a minor key, and when everything comes to the conclusion, you play a major chord at the end instead of ending in a minor chord. So that's really it. You and hear I, it and I thought, I was like, oh, and so then a Picardy Third is also the opposite of that. And it's like, no, right? It's, it's yeah. only minor... It's only minor to major. major. Yep, just minor tune ending in major. And this happens all the time in the Baroque era. You hear it even in modern music. It's not that uncommon. And, you know, it just kind of takes a sad, frowny face piece of music and makes it leave with a smile, I guess. Okay. Yeah. What did you elect to listen to? I picked some old stuff just so you could hear that it's been around for a while. So uh, I picked music by a Baroque composer named Orlando Gibbons, and we're going to listen to uh, just the end of a couple of his Fantasias, which he wrote in 1620. So this is He's an English dude, right? Yeah. Okay. And it's such an early, 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 early Baroque music. Early, early Baroque, right? 1620, that's the beginnings kind of of it all. So, uh, so yeah, let's listen to a little Orlando Gibbons. And I'll set, set it up, we'll listen to a little bit of it, then we'll fast forward to the end so you can hear, hear the end. Okay. Yeah. So this is his, his number six, Fantasia uh, for three, number six. <laughs> key business. Let's let's go to the end then. Do you hear the note that makes it major? That's tonic. So what's the note that makes it major? That's the fifth. So we need the third. Dun. Yeah, the third. Instead of dun. Yep. It's dun. Exactly. So let's listen to that ending again. Okay, so here's <laughs> another Fantasia by Orlando Gibbons. This is the eighth Fantasia. Thank you. 
Alright, so here's what the end of this one sounds like. So happy, so <laughs> happy, so happy. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yep. So that's that's it. And there, so there's a name a name for that, and it's called the Picardy Third. And they're not really entirely sure why it's called that. There is a region in France called Picardy. I'm sure that's not how it's said, but whatever. And no one really knows why it's ended up being called the Picardy Third, but. It's, yeah, I failed to mention this, so I'm going to add it in now. Uh, the third part of Picardy third refers to the third note of the scale. That's what changes a scale from major to minor. So if, uh, let's say, C major, the first three notes are C, D, E. In C minor, the first three notes are C, D, E flat. So that third note, that's why it's called Picardy third. If you hear minor and it ends in a major, even if it's hip hop. Yep. It's a Picardy third. It is a Picardy third. So great. That's, <laughs> That's so correct. fun. Yep. That's so fun. I love minutiae like this. I've always – it's what got me into wine, actually. One of the things that got me into wine is like learning, you know, like, yeah, you can Cabernet and you can Sauvignon Blanc and you can all these bigger yeah. themes. But like thinking of, I don't know – Grapes like Gamay de Booze and learning why that's around. Yeah. Knowing the residual sugar levels in Comandaria. Yeah. And that's a regulated thing. And that's minutia. Well, that sucks because it's regulated. And let's yeah. just face it, that's not fun. But yeah. the fact that that's something people need to know. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of think it's, it's amazing. Great. No, it's amazing. Let's talk about training systems. All right. This is going to be really confusing because we're going to do this audibly. And I'm going to try to see if I can. We can upload some things, but For sure. if we can't, yeah. um, we won't. But training and trellising systems. So that's not uncommon to for people that are not in the wine business to be driving down the lanes of Napa mm-hmm. or Bordeaux or Rioja and see vines that are one on almost on top of the other, right, right next to each other, and they're in certain systems that are very common mm-hmm. that you might not know the names of but you've seen them a hundred times. So what I don't want to do is talk about those, but I will, (laughs) but I will show Emily Mm -hmm. so she can see how common we're talking about the single cordon, the double cordon, the single guyot and double guyot. These are probably, I don't want to say the most commonly used training systems for vines, but you see them everywhere. What I want to talk about is the Scott Henry training method, and the Geneva double curtain. And just to explain why training and trellising is important, because they deal with what's called canopy management. And most folks don't really think about the fact that soils talked about often and all the stuff in the cellars talked about, the farming practices are, are spoken of. But when we talk about canopy management, we're talking about the entire life of the productive vine when it's not sleeping, right, okay. or dormant. So we're talking about the exchange of photosynth- you know, photosynthesis and what's happening with, you know, shade because we need to shade grapes when it's really sunny so they don't burn, get sunburnt. Okay. But we need to have enough leaves to be able to adequately ripen those vines. And 
it's just like there was a time where all I wanted to talk about was trellising and <laughs> training because I thought it was so fascinating. Yeah. And today I really wanted to point out like how different these are. So Scott Henry training system, I'll, I'm just showing Emily. Yeah. It's a system where you've got the cane is coming up from the ground the perpendicular. Main, I would describe that as the main root. I don't know if that's what you would it's, call it's it. It's extension. But... It's what you see is the root underneath. Yeah. Above you see the cane, it's okay, called, or the okay. main trunk. Yep. Okay. okay there we go. Yeah. The trunk. So the trunk comes up and then it needs to go on the wire. Right? right? It needs to go to the right and left, yep. parallel to the ground. Yep. So in this situation, you've got the trunk coming up and it, it splits off left mm-hmm. and right, mm-hmm. and then it goes up further mm-hmm. and splits left and right again. Yeah. And on the top system, your canes are pointing like your little... Um, yeah. Your on the top, it's like fruit. a menorah. It's like the, a menorah. Yeah, they're they're going upwards. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then in the bottom, it's like a reverse menorah. They're going yep, downwards. They're going down. And so when you look at this in a productive, act, in an actual vine shot, yeah, it's like there's a shit ton of foliage. Yeah, and it's grapes. like a wall of leaves. And there are places in the world where this would not work, right? Either because you, of the sun, or yes, and because you know most people would, most viticulturists that work with this system would say, you know, you want this in a north to south exposure, okay? So you're able to get adequate ripening for like hybrids. A lot of mm-hmm. people are saying this might be a really good method for hybrids in the Midwest. Don't try to plant things like they plant in Bordeaux. Yeah. You know, here you've got a lot of leaf cover yeah. to be able to suck in as much sun as possible. Because when you have things planted like cute old Bordeaux, yeah. there's just not enough leaves on those to mm. be able to fully ripen and get that vegetative flavor okay. out of hybrids, you know, because okay. hybrids can kind of be kind of vegetal, okay. um, to just put it mildly. Yeah. And so this is a really cool training system to work in uh, that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. The next one I wanted to talk about was the Geneva double curtain. So now we have a vine that is, or that you've got the root system, like Emily said, yes. trunk above ground, and it splits off left and right, like a like just like mm-hmm. the Scott Henry system we just mentioned. Yeah. But instead of going up and down, left and right, the trunk comes up, it goes left and right, and then it goes backwards and forwards. Yeah, each and then way. it splits again, so and, it splits twice. Yep, and so you got like two. To, and, and granted, this is really hard to explain. It you is. Know, I might we'll like put a picture up for sure. But yeah, I might yeah. like email Wine Folly hashtag Wine Folly all day and be like, Hey, yeah. can we use this? Because it's oh, really yeah, cool to be to able them, to yeah. to be able to put this here. And then this is to show it um, in like a actual. Check that out, Emily. Like oh, to wow. see it. In full motion, oh, it's weird. It's just planted in such a way that it's is very strange. Yeah. Um, yeah, it looks really strange, and it's supposedly for vines that the trunk is really large. Okay, and it's got a lot of foliage. Like, just the leaves are really big. The trunk okay. is really big. Okay, this is you know when you sit next to someone on a plane and they're just a little big, and they just want to like the seat should be a little bigger. <laughs> this is like that. It's like that for vines. It's just the spacing is different to yeah. allow for more growth, okay. to allow for the vine to be comfortable nice. and produce at its will. Yeah, I mean, to be its best self. Thank you. That's better because yes. at will, we know vines go into like survival mode and don't even produce grapes. So, okay. yeah. yes, this would be best. Um, the last one I wanted to talk about, which is super cool and one of my favorite, is called the um, Colura. Way of make of growing vines and this spell is that for me. K o u l o u r a. Okay, 
And this is, a, it's a Greek word, but there, there are a few different places in the world that use something very similar. But what I'm going to show Emily here is on the island of Santorini and a few other islands in Greece, they specifically use this method. And they're vines that are literally roped around in a circle or as close to a circle as possible. And, you know, uh, two feet across, three feet across, one foot across. This one's huge right here. And all the grapes are are grown in the inside of the, that vine that's swirling around. The Whoa. leaves are on the outside for photosynthesis, but also to protect from the wind. Oh. Winds are so, like, wreak havoc on some of these vineyards that their okay. grapes wouldn't survive. They'd be struck by stones. They'd, you know. Yeah. So this is just a way to protect. And Cute. It's... Yeah, it's it's a way to, you know, of course, you're enticing and inviting photosynthesis, but you're also protecting mm -hmm. in a way that's necessary. And this is a very, a quite ancient method on the island of Santorini. So nice. it's just fun to talk about like trellis yeah. and training systems that yeah. people have probably never seen before. Because yeah. if you like wine and you've been to any wine producing regions in the world that are of note, yeah. you've seen all the popular ones. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. I won't even, so... That's yeah. all. Cool. That's all. Train the Scott Henry system. Neat. I know. It's very cool. Bass trumpet. Oh, gosh. Let's talk bass about the bass trumpet. trumpet. I want one. Uh, you said we could get one for $5,000. Oh, I'm sure we could find one for cheaper, but if you want a brand new, really nice, professionally made one, then they're about five grand. Yeah. The bass trumpet started in the 1820s in Europe in military bands. There were all, and there are still all kinds of less common brass instruments that pop up in military bands and brass bands and drum corps and things like that. There are some odd ones. Um, so early 1820s is one of the first times, like 1821 or something, the word bass trumpet in a different language is... German? Emerges, yeah. Okay. So then there's this composer, German composer named Richard Wagner who wanted... He he wanted more voices in the world of brass instruments, and he wrote music for bass trumpet. He included bass trumpet, let me put it this way, he included bass trumpet in his most famous body of work, which is called The Ring Cycle, which is a set of four operas that he spent most of his life writing. And there's all these really great parts for bass trumpet in there. Bass trumpet looks like a trumpet that gained about 40 pounds and has way more tubing. But it's still played like that. You you know. Does it have four valves or three valves? It depends. It can have four or three. Okay. And those can be rotary valves like you would see on a French horn where they're like flat uh, oh. levers. Or they could be piston valves like you would see on a trumpet or on a valve trombone. Uh, so they're... The, the bass trumpet really does sound like trombone, and so it can be really difficult to distinguish it from anything. But in any event, Wagner wrote a lot of bass trumpet parts in, in this big, long ring cycle of his that's like 24 hours of opera. And uh, there's bass trumpet in, like, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. I actually got to play the bass trumpet part when I was an undergraduate many, 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 many years ago. But it's it's a unique little instrument. Um, so uh, what we're going to do first, though, weirdly, is hear it in jazz because there's a really famous jazz bass trumpetist named Cy Tooth. And so just to give you an idea, we're going to hear some bass trumpet uh, played by Cy Tooth right now. And if this doesn't make your morning 
happy your day or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you're just you're just you're not my kind of people. I mean, that's all <laughs> I'm gonna say. I just literally was listening to this this morning and have heard him before, and I just I just love it. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so he's doubling with the tenor sax. Yeah. So that's just to give you an idea that it does sound quite a bit like trombone. It can play a little higher than trombone, depending on what kind of bass trumpet you have, because mm-hmm. there are a couple different kinds. But but yeah, it's got that real beautiful, mellow, baritone kind of range of a sound, and, it, and it's great. And when when you read the notes you needed to play, yeah. were they in the treble clef, and you were reading them, and then you were yes. playing them, but they... That sounds an octave lower, yes. right? Okay. Yes. Okay. So, so they're also, not, yeah, they're not reading on like the bass part of the bass clef or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, um, so bass trumpets can, like I said, there are a couple different uh, kinds of, of them. There are a couple different transpositions, as we would call it. Uh, some type of bass trumpets have a trumpet mouthpiece or a mouthpiece much more similar to a trumpet, but also sometimes trombone players will play bass trumpets because the mouthpiece could be much bigger than what a trumpeter is mm. accustomed to playing, much more like a trombonist. So it kind of depends on the piece and the person, yeah. really. But I would say more often than not, it is actually a trumpeter who's playing it. Okay. Yeah. So let's just listen to a little bit of it in the ring cycle. And this is a part where we're going to hear, um, there are all these albums uh, that have been out for, for many, many years. This has been a thing where uh, professional instrumentalists that play in orchestras will record famous orchestral excerpts so that people can hear how they're supposed to be played so that when they go on auditions they know how they're supposed to play the trumpet solo in Mahler's fourth symphony or whatever and so those are uh, available streaming too so we have this cool opportunity to hear uh, an actual bass trumpeter playing an excerpt from Wagner's opera and then we'll hear the actual full orchestra playing it. So, all right, so this is from um, Das Rheingold, which is the first of the four operas in Wagner's Ring Cycle. And it's a very pretty uh, opening to Act Two. Yeah, so we'll hear that part. It's really cool to do it like that.
I'm so glad you decided on that as a topic because how many people listen to this and adore this piece and have no idea what a bass trumpet is? Yeah, or you would even be able to hear that that's not a trombone or a French horn or something, you know what I mean? Like it's it's such a subtle difference, but when when Wagner does these big brass sections in these operas, it's so full and satisfying because he's got all these extra voices in there that didn't make it into the mainstream. I mean, really, Cy Touf, the only bass trumpet jazz artist I've ever heard of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and Cy Touf was around in like the 50s, so it didn't catch on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there are a handful of orchestral pieces that have it in there, but again, it's it's not a mainstream instrument by any means, yeah. It's neat, though. So, well, shit you, you never heard of. Yeah, shit you've never heard of, people. Badiki, yep. Yep. the bass trumpet. Yep. Here's to that. Training systems. That are weird, that are called Geneva Double Curtain. Cheers to that. Here's the scores and pours. Shit you have heard of, people. That's right. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, we rely on donations here, so do consider contributing to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. <laughs> ¶¶